This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Christy Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and welcome to the How to Love Lit podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, then give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and text an episode to a friend. Today, we're switching gears in our discussion of Thornton Wilder and his remarkable career as a playwright and a novelist, among other things. Uh, This is the first of our supplemental episodes where we feature a different piece of writing connected to the primary work. We've decided to change it up a bit and feature an entire novel as a supplement to the play, but in two episodes. So next week, we will take a totally different direction, by the way. Uh, We do a three-part series on three key historical documents connected to the 4th of July. The first being Patrick Henry's famous speech, Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death, followed by the Declaration of Independence and then the Constitution, so that's something we've never done before and something I look forward to, and I, and I hope everybody else does. But this week and next, we're excited about the novel that made Thornton Wilder famous and also won him his first Pulitzer Prize, The Bridge of San Luis Rey. So, Christy, tell us what's remarkable about this book. Well, first and foremost, it's set in Peru. That's so exciting. And I do have to make a personal connection uh, I've never taught this book, and up until the podcast, I hadn't even read it. I read it just for this episode, so I'm a little nervous about talking about it, but I've always been interested in it and wanted to read it, so this has been a great opportunity, and I'm so excited about it. It's just one of those books that you never get around to actually having a reason to get to it. So when it first came out, uh, it was a crowd pleaser, and everyone loved it. Even critics, and we know that doesn't happen very often. When what do they say when the tomatoes rate it high? (laughs) 
Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> the Rotten Tomatoes. Yes. You know, you, you have the ones that the critics like and the ones that the people right. like. It's never Usually, the <laughs> if the people love it, critics hate it, and vice yeah. versa. So this is those rare pro- times when all of the people agree on the tomato rating. Uh, but in 1927, the year that the book came out, uh, there was a criteria that in order to win the Pulitzer Prize, and it was a candidate to win the Pulitzer Prize, it had to, and I'm going to quote this, it had to reflect, and let me quote, according to the rubric of the Pulitzer Committee, the atmosphere of American life and the highest standard of American manners and manhood. Hmm. <laughs> well, uh, oh. That statement alone, of course, reflects a very different set of cultural circumstances in many ways from years ago. And, you know, today we would never limit the credit to a work by whatever someone's definition uh, of what it meant to be American is, much less would we suggest it would necessarily have to define manhood. Manhood. (laughs) Yeah, but you could run into some obstacles with that. Well, it was actually problematic at the time, especially for this book, because Bridge of San Luis Rey doesn't tried to do any of that. First of all, it's set in Peru, and it's not trying to say anything about manhood in America at all. But the Pulitzer jury was unanimous in recommending it for the prize, knowing that as a group they had this problem of the rubric. So there was a campaign uh, that really um, tried to highlight its important literary merit in various ways and kind of overcome this obvious obstacle. <laughs> well, just by way of clarification, in case someone doesn't know, the Pulitzer Prize or Pulitzer Prize, or you hear both <laughs> pronunciations, I'm going with Pew. The Pulitzer I'll, I'll Prize. Do that too. <laughs> okay. It's an award for achievements in newspaper, magazine, online journalism, literature, uh, and musical composition in the United States. It was established in 1917 by provisions in the will of Joseph Pulitzer, who had made his fortune as a newspaper publisher, and it's administered by Columbia University in New York City. So it wasn't really that old whenever he got it, just 10 years in. Mm -hmm. And there are actually 21 categories, and of those 21, 20 of them get a $15,000 cash prize. One gets a gold medal for public service. Uh, one uniqueness about it is you actually have to be an American citizen to qualify, and the music or the written piece must first be published or recorded in the U.S. So you can see it's not quite as expansive as the Nobel Prize, which is international, but it's a pretty prestigious award to get. And one other thing that makes it different from the Nobel is that you get it for a single piece of writing, not your entire body of work. So it's the Oscars or Grammys for writing. These awards are probably more well-known, mostly because they're on television. That's true. I assume the language American life originated because it's writing, as in that's the form of communication. So, of course, if you want it to be an American word, that would kind of make sense. Uh, just like the Oscars are for American-produced movies. But interestingly enough... The Pulitzer Committee agreed to award the prize to Wilder, and they actually changed the language of the definition to this. And I'm going to, this is a quote, preferably one which shall present the whole atmosphere of American life. So they deleted the line about manhood and manners. <laughs> better, better. Uh, well, it made it slightly more nebulous about the definition of America. 
Yes, and I will say uh, our good friend Danny Avery, who is from Guatemala, would take great offense to even that use of the word. I can hear her in my head even now saying, America is not just the United States. Yes, we've heard that many times. <laughs> uh, for sure, from her perspective, which I completely agree with, uh, a book about Peru would be 100% a book about American life. It would be South American life. Of course. But, of course, we clearly understand what they meant by this term. This little incident does show the evolution of changes in culture and language as it's reflected in writing. Or writing, influencing culture, and hopefully changing it in a positive way. I will say that this novel in particular actually has kind of been influential in a lot of ways that you wouldn't wouldn't really expect more than just expanding the concept of American literature for the Pulitzer. The book's never been out of print. And it's often quoted, kind of like our town, during moments of great tragedy, except for completely different reasons. It was quoted in a very important book called Hiroshima by John Hersey after World War II. But more uh, recently, and actually more famously, 10 days after 9-11, Tony Blair, in a speech about the victims of that horrible tragedy, quotes the final lines from this book. So you can see it's been influential, and it's really kind of had a lot of staying power over the years. Yes, that's true. And both books really explore love and the value of the human connection, but not at all in the same way. In this book, uh, the direction Wilder takes us is by looking at human tragedy. That is not the common experience of everyone. And in that way, um, it is so very different from our town where we were exploring how we are all similar. In our town, he creates characters that are as standard or basic as possible. And the thematic idea falls somewhere in the neighborhood of exploring the concept of common humanity. Uh, he defines our essence as well as the connection between us as valuable and eternal and infinitely meaningful in that regard. Well, and that's true, and that's why it's such a feel-good book. But in this book, not so much. The relationships <laughs> are very different. Of course, being a novel, by definition, you can be more nuanced. You know, Remember, Wilder had this idea that in the theater, you're communicating to a group somewhat like a mob, although a nice one. I don't think he ever feared for his life. But the relationships between the characters uh, in The Bridge of San Lee Ray are complex, and my opinion, they're mostly horrible. Nobody wants those. But in every case, what we see is one person in the relationship overinvests in a, in a relationship, and that in investment really isn't reciprocated. So what do I mean by that? There's a character that loves another person, and he gives or she gives to that other person. In return, they're treated cruelly or taken advantage of in some way, and that could be intentionally or unintentionally, and the character's are often pretty unhappy, and, and the tragedy they suffer seems to have absolutely no correlation to any form of human behavior. And this is something people just have a desire or maybe an intuitive need to believe about the nature of life. We love to say, he had it coming, you know, like the, I can hear Catherine Zeta-Jones singing that in my <laughs> head from Chicago, but, or we want to believe in karma, but Wilder doesn't see life as really playing out like that. Well, interestingly enough, uh, in my short tenure of being a literature <laughs> reader, 
Um, I have found toxic relationships are a theme that surfaced more often than I expected. And this is where we kind of got the genesis and the seed of the idea of our podcast. It was the, the cross connection of your ideas and literature and your characters and me looking at them going, some of those people are mentally ill and they're <laughs> diagnosable. And so they be, it all became oh. fascinating to me then. Uh, but anyway, I'm speculating, but I think it's what keeps people coming back to these kinds of books. It seems many people find themselves trapped in exactly those kinds of situations and relationships, and they want to think them through. And maybe why books like this sell out quickly. You know, I've always thought that exact thing about the book Withering Heights, because the character in that book, Catherine, and she's so dark and disturbed. And that's another book, never been out of print. Uh, and this book really... I'm I'm going to be a Debbie Downer if you haven't read it yet, which it's a nice short book to read. It's clearly not uplifting and not trying to be. It's not that kind of book. It's also far from a plot-driven book. He has no attempt to follow Freytag's triangle, like exposition, narrative hook, rising hack, like the kind of thing that you would expect, f- climax, falling action, res- forget that, none of that. Um, but it became an instant success, It was immediately reprinted 17 times between the time it was published and then when it got the Pulitzer. It sold so well, this is kind of nice, that Wilder was able to quit his teaching job and devote himself to full-time writing. And my favorite thing, he bought a house in Connecticut and he called it the house the bridge built. (laughs) (laughs) I know. He lived there with his sister and his parents. Well, to go back to things we've said in earlier podcasts, uh, these bad characters stand out and these books are so popular because everybody has one of these people in their life. And that's what they identify with. And so anyway, the, the unusualness of the style of this book comes out immediately. And unlike our town, you can't suggest that it doesn't have any real drama. I mean, I'm not sure I've ever read a book where they tell you that everyone is dead in the first (laughs) sentence. I'm not sure I've even seen that in a TV show or a movie, uh, although I'm sure there's one, maybe Lost or um, The the Good Place, you know, shows like that. But even those don't land where Wilder lands, not even close. Well, true. And let me just read the first line so we can all know what you're talking about. It says this, On Friday noon, July the 20th, 1714, the finest bridge in all Peru broke and precipitated five travelers into the gulf below. And in this case, precipitated means caused to happen suddenly, unexpectedly, or prematurely. Or in plain language, they fell to their deaths. (laughs) Yeah, it's sad, shocking. (laughs) And that's sentence one. (laughs) Yes. And of course, after that wonderful first sentence, we can see that the book is now going to jump backwards through time and then bring us to this moment that what would have caused this to happen, except we're going to see nothing caused this to happen. What brought us to this point to where the accident occurs and then it takes you a little bit beyond that. It's written in the first person from the first person point of view, but really only in a technical sense. We see in the first chapter, especially the pronoun I. Uh, but for the most part, it feels somewhat omniscient and really third person. You as a reader are very detached from the slew of characters that we're really going to meet. So what I think is really ingenious about that perspective 
is that it kind of plays into, it supports some of the detachment ideas that he's going to kind of suggest through the theme of the book, because he's really asking some basic questions that are absolutely unanswerable. Like, why do bad things happen? Why do they happen to some people and not others? Is it because someone deserves this, even though they may or may not look like they do? Does life have a meaning? Is it just completely random? So everything from the point of view to the setting, to the characters, to the plot, contribute not at all to answering these questions because he's no one's that air. Well, people, some people might be, but he's not arrogant enough to say he can answer it, but he does think he can explore it. The next three parts after that first part where we find out what's happening, we get to know the lives of the different characters that lead that were on the bridge. And then the last part is about Brother Juniper, the person. And if there's a protagonist of the book, perhaps he comes closest to being one, but that kind of is arguable. Some people might say that there's really not one. So you can see that that makes it completely different than a lot of other stories. So there is something of a frame story because we have this frame of the collapse of the bridge, and then we're going to go back and look at these different stories. But this is very different than what we saw in Frankenstein. So uh, for that reason, it's kind of difficult to think about, well, where should we start when we talk about the book? And I think perhaps the easiest way is to start with the setting because that's clearly the most straightforward. It's laid out, you know, in 1714, the finest bridge in all of Peru. Yeah, yeah. I guess it doesn't get more straightforward than time and place. Indeed. And then he's going to, of course, develop it even a little bit further in the second sentence. This bridge was on the high road between Lima and Cusco and hundreds of persons passed over it every day. So let's start talking about this amazing place, Peru. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, I want to say, I think we've mentioned before, but you have been there yourself. Woo-hoo! Your dad, your stepmother, and your two daughters hiked the entire length of the Inca Trail. You did not. Yes, so proud. You did not take the train up. You <laughs> walked it. How many days did it take to walk it? Uh, four. Okay. That's a lot of walking. <laughs> Anyway, uh, and I know you're very proud of that uh, accomplishment. Uh, That's such a unique experience, and I hope you find a way to embed for our listeners a little of the impressions you had of the beautiful scenery of the Andes Mountains, or we should uh, at least put up a few pics on the website. Oh, for sure we can do that, because we were there, you know, a week, because you have to allow time for your body to acclimate to the altitude before you can actually hike or you'll pass out. So while we were there... Uh, waiting for our blood cells to multiply or whatever has to happen in your body so you don't throw up. We really had an opportunity to learn a lot about Incan culture, farming techniques, their art, tapestries, the Sacred Valley where the emperors are buried, and of course, llamas. (laughs) I love llamas. The heroes of Peruvian history. Yes. (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure all of our listeners know, but Peru today is unique amongst other South American countries because historically uh, it was the heart of the Incan Empire for hundreds of years. And today, even after all those years, still like 13 to 25 percent of Peru's population speak Quechua, the language of the Incan Empire. 
I know that's incredible. And Fernando, who was our guide who led us uh, through the mountains, spoke it. And so did a lot of the people who relate to literally the millions of tourists who flood Cusco every year to visit, obviously, one of the most famous World Heritage sites. And I, you're right, you don't have to hike the Incan Trail. I don't think most people do, obviously. They take the train. <laughs> Um, I'm going to think that's understandable. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and of course, I know it was an incredible privilege to have those days before the hike to learn about the legacy of the empire. I mean, we see its influence starting with the llama as the featured element on the Peruvian flag. The llama being an extremely important beast of burden, providing wool and food and other things in Incan culture. Sure. Uh, Incan culture and Peruvian culture, from my perspective, seems... They seem inextricable, at least to me. But uh, why that matters for this book in particular is because this is really not about the Incan world and the book at all, except, you know, the origins of the bridge are Incan. What Wilder chooses to feature is not the dominant and more ancient culture of Peru, but in this book, the setting is primarily about Spanish colonizers and their descendants in Peru, which is another culture that is infused uh, in this interesting place. So, Gary, what can you tell us just about the Spanish colonizers? Well, let me just say a couple more things about the geography that matters. Uh, it's no small thing to do to go from Lima to Cusco. If you were to drive it today, it would take 19 to 23 hours to drive and you'd have to dodge a plethora of landslides and potholes and any number of dangerous obstacles never mind the problem of the altitude sickness lima has an altitude of 505 feet cusco's altitude is 11,152 feet or 3,400 meters or (laughs) 2.1 miles okay that's tall that's a that's a steep (laughs) climb Uh, And most people are going to get altitude sickness when they go from one city to the other. Peru is a country of incredible diversity of altitude and incredible beaches and some of the highest mountains in the world. And this story takes place on the road between those two places. Well, I just want to say right now, we didn't climb two miles into the air. We were already at a high point when we started walking. And I will say that when you fly into Cusco, they know that you have this problem. And they have people stationed at the gates in the airport and they just hand out coca leaves that you're supposed to be chewing on basically the whole time that you're there. <laughs> mm, coca leaves. How many people were confused by that when they I got know. off the airport? Oh, they're not confused, but... <laughs> I bet that turned some eyebrows up. Well, they don't do this in Memphis for sure, but I promise you it's purely medicinal. The coca keeps you from displaying, you know, altitude sickness and you're, it's a mild stimulant and Part of the Incan cultural experience, for sure. (laughs) Well, of course. Well, anyway, let's get back to the cocaine-free book (laughs) at this point. Uh, When the book says a bridge between these two places, you need really to envision in your head some very high, uh, scary heights and some deep gulfs. The bridge itself is an Incan rope bridge, which... I don't know why anybody would cross it, but actually there are quite a few of these all over the Incan Empire. They did everywhere. Yeah. The technology is actually very advanced for the time and were used only for people and animals. Then they were a quick way for runners to get information all over the Incan Empire. And However, I do want to clarify that this particular bridge did not exist in real life. 
But because these bridges were common and quite stable, it's not strange that so many people, uh, as in the story, would cross it with no thought of falling. Would you cross it without a fall, a, th- a thought of falling? Uh, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> So Wilder made up this particular bridge, although today in Peru they uh, have many that think uh, that inspired the one in the novel, and it spans a 45-meter gap, so that's quite long. And uh, besides the bridge being his creation, as far as I can tell, so is the shrine of Santa Maria Cluxumbuqua. There's a mouthful. I don't know if I could say that three times fast. (laughs) Well, I hope I was in the ballpark and correct pronunciation anyway the destination of the first two travelers who died on the bridge and we'll talk about it when we talk about them in section two but from how wilder describes the events of the books you can tell that the fictional location of this bridge isn't far up in the mountains but instead it's just outside of lima as opposed to just outside of cusco yes uh and of course as we know setting isn't just place it's also time and we're given a very specific year 1714, long before Wilder ever lived. And I will say, Wilder hadn't even visited Peru when he wrote the book. So everything that he knows and he talks about in the book, he got from research, which is quite expansive. So what should we know about Peru as it was in 1714? Yes, like many South American countries, it has a bloody history, especially for its native populations, unfortunately. In 1494, two years after Columbus sailed the ocean blue, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain signed a treaty with Portugal and basically split up the South American continent between those two imperial powers. After they did that, they sent many soldiers to invade these lands. They introduced into South America horses and dogs, muskets, cannons, and smallpox, among other diseases. But smallpox turned to be out it turned out to be extremely deadly since they had no immunity to it there. In uh, 1535, Pizarro conquered the Incan Empire and set up the capital city in what ultimately was called Lima. In 1570. The Spanish Inquisition came to Peru, and we can see its (laughs) immense influence in the Bridge of San Luis Rey, especially poor Brother Juniper, which I don't want to spoil the end of the book for you, but it runs into a little bit of friction with religious authorities. And I want to add one other note. One of our more famous breakfast restaurants in Memphis is called Brother Juniper's. And another note, I believe one of your favorite Monty Python skits is also called the Spanish Inquisition. Yes, I'm a huge fan of Monty <laughs> Python, and they do have a skit. No one expects the Spanish Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> well, what is the Spanish Inquisition? Well, the Spanish Inquisition was basically a religious court. Um, you can think of it a little bit like the Sanhedrin, if you listen to our Easter special about the crucifixion of Christ. And although the Sanhedrin obviously uh, wasn't government-sanctioned or endorsed, but what they did was uh, was enforce adherence to the Catholic religion on um, populations, to be honest. Uh, they were way more concerned about Jews and Muslims than they were about Incans. And if you didn't comply to the practices and dogmas of the church, you could be prosecuted and even executed. Although I think, honestly, modern numbers suggest that less than 3% of those prosecuted were actually executed, and that's total everywhere in the world. It'd be enough, though. A three out of 100 chance it would deter. It sends a message. It sends a message. Well, like I said, um, Wilder is really going to give us some nice insight on the way 
these things express themselves uh, in this context. I think it's remarkable, you know, they does seem to have some accurate insight into Peruvian culture. Of course, I don't claim to have uh, that kind of uh, expertise, but I do know for a fact that he got a lot of his original inspiration from a novel, well, for a novel, from a French play called La Carrosse de Saint-Sacrement, and I'm probably a little bit <laughs> rusty on my French your as Portuguese well. Your Portuguese is fluent, but, but your French is spotty. <laughs> well, this is a playwright named Prosper Merami, and um, that's about a love affair between an actress called La Pericole and Don Andres de Ribeiro, Viceroy of Peru. So if you haven't gotten... Uh, that far in the book, the Pericle is one of the characters that, of course, dies in the accident. Uh, well, let me speak to that for a moment, because that leads to understanding the political setup that we see in the novel. Uh, so the Spanish established what they called vice royalties to govern South America, and that's sort of their word for colonies. I mean, anyway, Lima was the capital of one of them. So Lima was an extremely powerful place. It was the seat of the government. It was the seat of religion. It was the seat of culture for a large portion of Spanish South America. Uh, the university that is referenced in the novel, San Marcos, is extremely important. In fact, it still is. That university is the first and oldest continuously operating university in the Americas. And all of this actually is referenced on the very first page of the book. The Viceroy, the Catholic Archbishop, the Incans. I mean, all of this culture is really alluded to at the very beginning. So he's dropped us into this ancient and unusual place. And we will meet a very unusual man who is going to narrate for us the entirety of the next three sections, sort of, because he writes a book that our narrator gets and reads from, if you want to think of it that way. So, Gary, can you read for us Brother Juniper, or Juniper, I'm sure that's <laughs> properly, more properly pronounced, uh, his accounts of the events that kind of set up the story. Yes. It was a very hot noon, that fatal noon, and coming around the shoulder of a hill, Brother Juniper stopped to wipe his forehead and to gaze upon the screen of snowy peaks in the distance, then into the gorge below him filled with the dark plumage of green trees and green birds and traversed by its ladder of osier. Joy was in him. Things were not going badly. He had opened several little abandoned churches, and the Indians were crawling into early mass and groaning at the moment of miracle as though their hearts would break. Perhaps it was the pure air from the snows before him. Perhaps it was a memory that brushed him for a moment of the poem that bade him raise his eyes to the helpful hills. At all events, he felt at peace. Then his glance fell upon the bridge, and at that moment, a twanging noise filled the air, as when the string of some musical instrument snaps in a disused room, and he saw the bridge divide and fling five gesticulating ants into the valley below. Mm. Anyone else would have said to himself with secret joy, within ten minutes myself. But it was another thought that visited Brother Juniper. Why did this happen to those five? If there were any plan in the universe at all, if there were any pattern in a human life, surely it could be discovered mysteriously latent in those lives so suddenly cut off. 
Either we live by accident and die by accident, or we live by plan and die by plan. And on that instant, Brother Juniper made the resolve to inquire into the secret lives of those five persons, that moment falling through the air into the surprise, the reason of their taking off. So we meet a noble man, a good man, a man devout in his religious faith that's having success. He's a believer in God. He's a person who he thinks about or suggests he could have been on that bridge himself. Earlier, we see that he had just stopped to wipe his forehead. And of course, the kind of thoughts that he had, you know, would be what anybody would have if you just very narrowly miss a total disaster. True. If you pass a bad car accident, any person will think, wow, I could have been in that accident. I was so close. And many times you're shocked and then you feel guilty for having those kind of thoughts and you're left with the drama of reliving a near miss. And how do you process that? Right. And I assume people process that very differently. But for a religious man like Brother Juniper, his thoughts naturally turn towards God and he seeks to follow in the same noble path as John Milton famously did before him. And let me use Milton's language as he sets out to, quote, justify the ways of God to man. So that's that's his way of kind of processing what had happened. And said, not like Milton, who used biblical narrative as a means of discovery, he's going to use investigative journalism into the lives of these people to find the answer to that question. Basically, he wants to investigate who were these people who he just literally watched plunge to their horrifying death. Well, so is this a religious book? Uh, I know it sounds like it, but it isn't. Religion is used in this novel as part of the setting, kind of like the same way he's using Lima or the Spanish Inquisition. So we're going to walk Well, let me walk that back a minute. I guess in a metaphysical sense, you could say that he's exploring religion because religion does ask existential questions and speaks to man's ability to find love, meaning in life, relate to other people, process grief. So in that sense, so does Wilder. But Wilder isn't making a case or a religious case of how any of these goals could actually be achieved or how you should pursue insight into any of them. So in that sense, I don't really think you can argue that it's a religious book at all. The church, there is a church, the church in this book is an institution, but mostly it's a political institution. It's really not a place of faith. The archbishop isn't a spiritual leader in the book. And really the only thing they say about him is in reference to his refined taste in food, his interest in European music and his study of linguistics. So I don't think any religious leader of any version of Christian faith today would do anything like what we see the judges of the Spanish Inquisition doing in this story. So you can't really look at this book as a religious book. And I don't really think you should even look at it as a political book, just like I feel like it's a mistake to look at our town through those kinds of lenses. So back to the plot. We have this accident. We have a devoted religious brother dedicated to bringing Christianity to a new land. And in his effort to better do his job, he's going to set out to research the lives of these people. And according to the story, for six years, he knocks, and I'm going to quote this, on all 
the doors in Lima and asked thousands of questions, filling scores of notebooks in his effort at establishing the fact that each of the five lost lives was a perfect whole. And again, before he even gets to the first character, Wilder is going to throw another spoiler in the story. Listen to this, and I'm going to read this. The result of all of this diligence was an enormous book, which we shall see later, was publicly burned on a beautiful spring morning in the Great Square. But there was a secret copy, and after a great many years, and without much notice, it found its way to the library of the University of San Marco. There it lies between two great wooden covers collecting dust in a cupboard. It deals with one after another of the victims of the accident, cataloging thousands of little facts and anecdotes and testimonies and concluding with a dignified passage describing why God had settled upon that person and upon that day for his demonstration of wisdom. Yet for all his diligence, Brother Juniper never knew the central passion of Dona Maria's life, nor of Uncle Pius, nor even of Estevan's. And I, who claim to know so much more, isn't it possible that even I have missed the very spring within the spring? Some say that we shall never know, and that to the gods we are like the flies that the boys kill on a summer day. And some say, on the contrary, that the very sparrows do not lose a feather that has not been brushed away by the finger of God. And that's the end of part one. What do you think of that, Gary? <laughs> I think it's a very engaging way to start a story. I mean, I did read that Wilder's interest in this topic took root in the many, many religious discussions he had with his own father, who was an extremely devout Christian. Uh, there is a famous passage in the Bible, the Gospel of Luke, actually, that talks about this issue. In uh, Luke 13, Jesus is talking, and he asked this question in regard to what seems to be a terrible accident in Galilee, which is where they lived, and it says this, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you no. And then later on, he repeats this with details of the actual accident. He says, of those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no. So clearly the question Wilder is raising then is, well, if they're not worse sinners, then what happened? And I want to throw this at her. There's a psychology term called just world phenomena. For people who believe that uh, the the just get rewarded and the unjust get punished, people who practice the uh, that phenomenon are usually disappointed. <laughs> well, that's the backdrop of this story, and we will meet these people. We will read their stories, and we can decide for ourselves if we see he's creating a connection. Uh, the characters, I will say, do seem to connect, but really not directly. No, and, and I was actually going to mention one final thing that connects to that. Uh, Lima had a terrible earthquake not too long before the story is set, and lots of their population was decimated. I think I've read uh, where there were about 40,000 people living there at the time, and, and although that sounds like a lot of people, it's really more of a small town vibe. But you might not know everyone, but you knew someone who knows everyone in a town that size, and that's kind of what you see here. They don't know each other directly, but they know people who know each other, and we start to see all those connections. Sure. And, uh, of course, that's 
going to be true. There's not a large cast of characters, really. We're going to meet the Marquesa de Montemayor and her servant Pepita, and those are the first two. Then we'll meet a pair of twins, Esteban and Manuel. Well, one thing I was interested to learn about Wilder is that he was born a twin. Now, his sibling died in childbirth, but he was actually born a twin. Oh, that's terribly sad, yet interesting, perhaps, to think about. Anyway, the twin in this story, Esteban, dies in the fall. He's the third character. His brother was already dead, sadly. We're going to meet another character named Uncle Pio, an actress named Pericle, and she has a son named Jaime. Of the three primary characters in part four, Uncle Pio and Jaime die, but the Pericle does not. So there are just a few characters, not many. There's another, a few side characters, obviously, that are going to, uh, engage these primary characters uh, in the story, and then we're going to find out at the end what happened to Brother Juniper or Brother Huniper after he published his book. And the Inquisition was <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition <laughs> choose to burn it. So that's what we can look forward to to next week. Great! I can hardly wait. Well, that's a wrap for this week's episode. If you're enjoying our discussions, we would like you to consider supporting us by giving us a five-star rating on Apple. Also, uh, text an episode that you like to a friend, whether it's this one or another one, Frankenstein or any of the other books we've covered. We grow when you share about us. Thank you. Peace out. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.